President Dwight Eisenhower once said, farming looks mighty easy when your plow is a pencil and you're a thousand miles from the cornfield. Of course, he was speaking to the bureaucrats in Washington, D.C., who were in some ways governing what was going on in the field, but paying homage to the nation's farmers. As we all know, farming is far from easy. It's important that America's farmers have strong advocates to stand up for them on matters of farm policy. Welcome to Groundwork. I'm your host, Tom Sell. So today we're going to talk to one of rural America's best advocates, and I'm so excited. Steve Verrett has been a fearless champion of our farmers in West Texas, one of the most productive regions of our nation's agricultural enterprise. Uh, but his influence hasn't stopped there. I think most of us working in farm policy can count Steve as a friend. His breadth and depth on the policy matters are well known in Washington, D.C. Steve recently retired as the CEO of Plains Cotton Growers after 24 years serving the industry. He's here with us today to share some of his insights and experience after decades of working in ag. Steve, thank you so much for joining us on Groundwork. Glad to be here. <laughs> You've led the cotton industry through so many milestone events in the past 24 years. Um, so let me just start by this. Tell us a little bit about how you got into it and then maybe just what are some of your biggest, proudest accomplishments over those 24 years? You know, uh, I was, I'm not the typical kind of farm kid that was in 4-H, FFA, and all of those things. When I went to school, uh, I was in FFA my senior year in high school, and that was because they had a work program. You know, after going to school, going to college, uh, again, I didn't really go the traditional ag route. I started out in agronomy, but I uh, realized quickly that my chemistry background was not very good. And so I needed to do something that was kind of a path of least resistance. And I'd taken bookkeeping in, in high school and it kind of come natural to me. Yeah. Debits and credits made sense to yeah. me. And so I decided I'm going to go the accounting route. And so that's what I did. I got a BBA degree from Texas Tech in 1976 in accounting. And then I went back to the farm, uh, and farming with my brother, uh, Eddie. Yeah. And, uh, and it was really after uh, being on the farm for a few years, I was asked to serve on a county farm bureau board. Of course. Yeah. And I got involved through Farm Bureau. That's really what gave me um, my initial start in kind of outside of farm activity and learning about policy. And then I was invited, I uh, served on the board for the Plains Co-op Oil Mill, mm -hmm. and uh, they were sending people to the National Cotton Council meeting. Okay. And so my wife, Patricia, and I got to go when we were real young uh, to Dallas to a National Cotton Council meeting. And that kind of exposed me to that. So it was through those that I, just, that I really got interested in policy, and I began to realize that there's a lot going on off the farm that affects what's happening on the farm it, as much as really what you're doing yeah. on the farm. So that was the beginning of it. And I come up through the ranks of Farm Bureau, served on their Cotton Advisory <laughs> Committee, American Farm Bureau Cotton Advisory Committee, and then the National Cotton Council on the, what is the American Cotton Producers today. It was the Producer Steering Committee, yeah. what it was called. Yeah. Served on that. And uh, uh, that's how I got started. And so 
it's all it's all the rest is history. You know, Farm Bureau is a great, really an incredible grassroots organization that's spread into a lot of things. They 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 talk about themselves as a voice for agriculture, but that all starts with bringing people out through that leadership structure. I'm glad you mentioned that you started out as, as an oil mill representative. A lot of people don't know uh, that cottonseed is broken down into a, a significant oil product. Talk, talk a little bit about that. Yeah, cotton, uh, we like to say they used to call cottonseed a buy, uh, byproduct. It's not that anymore. Yeah. It's a co-product. Yeah. Cotton produces two valuable products. The lint that everybody thinks of that's made into textiles, clothes, bed sheets, towels, whatever it may be. But then cotton seed is much like any other oil seed, sunflower, soybeans, whatever it might be. And so it is can be direct fed to <coughs> cattle, uh, but it can be processed yeah. like any other oil seed. Yeah. And it it uh, produces a myriad of products, not just the oil in the meal, yeah. but the very fine linters that yeah. come off of the that's left on after the ginning process that's used in a number of things. Plus the hulls are used in cattle feed as yeah. well. So I love that. So I want our listeners to know that not all the oil that comes out of Texas is, is a Texas it's, tea black gold. Right? No, it's not. So it's we not. have some of that, that yellow gold as well. And cottonseed oil, as you know, Tom, is the original vegetable oil. That's <laughs> You know, long before soybeans were cultivated on many acres in the United yeah, States, yeah. Uh, cottonseed yeah, was the original vegetable oil. That's cool. So I'm not going to let you escape the question of your proudest accomplishments, but I do want to go to this. Um, you know, you are a cotton farmer. That's where you got your start. Raised on a cotton farm, brought that experience along with accounting and and just good leadership skills to the table. But do you think your experience as a farmer has helped you? Uh, as you communicate to be more effective in that communication with people who don't understand the day-to-day challenges uh, that farmers face and maybe just relate a little bit about how that that background has helped you in places like Washington, D.C. Yeah, I think it has. Uh, You know, it just, when you've experienced it or you are experiencing it at the time, it just, it makes things more relevant, I think. Now, I'm I will be the first to say, however, that uh, we have a lot of advocates for agriculture today that may be two or three generations removed from the farm, really may not have any, may not have any farming in their background. And I know some that are very effective at what they do. I think the key thing is to have a belief in the people that you represent and what they bring to the table, what they mean for our nation, the area economy and stuff. And so, but in my case, I was very fortunate uh, to have had that farming background. And, you know, even the whole time I've been at Plains Cotton Growers, I've been operating a farm uh, the whole time with my brother and now with my son. And so uh, just didn't do a lot of the day-to-day work over the last 24 years. I appreciate your, your pointing to that kind of belief. I think anyone who's watched you work in Washington, D.C., watched you stand up on behalf of, of those that you represented, uh, what what comes through loud and clear is that that passion, that sincerity, that authenticity, authenticity and and a real belief in, in what you're standing up for. And I, 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 I agree with you. That is that is the key to to a good advocacy. So with that, Steve, maybe tell us a little bit, what, what are some of the biggest issues facing cotton producers today? I know in West Texas, finally, have had some great rains, maybe an exciting time. Prices are relatively strong, but but what are some of the bigger picture issues 
both both positives and and concerns that, that you see for the cut producers these days. Well, you know, we've come through several years of of certainly uncertainty in the market. I wouldn't say necessarily it's always been prices have, ba- have been bad. We've had some depressed prices, but it's just been a lot of uncertainty. And so we've had to rely even on programs outside the basic safety net. And, you know, going forward, I, I hope that we don't have to have as much reliance on that. As we all know, farmers much rather get, you know, all of their their revenue out of the market if at all possible. But we know from time to time, that's not gonna be the case. That's why we have crop insurance. That's why, why we have the farm bill safety net. But going forward, I think uh, it, some of the challenges are gonna stay the same, but certainly a big part of what we hear now is about the environment, mm-hmm. sustainability, uh, the consumer uh, or whether it's the consumer or it's the media driving the market going forward, whether it's food, whether it's clothes, whatever it may be, whether it's the fuel you put in your car is being driven much more by the consumer. Uh, And so we're going to have to be much more cognizant of that, I think, and be mindful of that. You know, the latest thing we've been talking about is sustainability, carbon capture, and a lot of that. Um, you know, all farmers are very willing to do whatever is necessary to preserve, not just to preserve, but to improve the quality of yeah. the land and the yeah. condition so, of the land. We, we should be not, <coughs> we shouldn't be uh, satisfied with just maintaining. Yeah. We need to be looking at doing things better and more efficiently. And so uh, going for how we make all that work and into a system where producers uh, are able to stay profitable while doing that uh, is going to be one of the greatest challenges. And then beyond that, from just an organizational standpoint, we have to continue to uh, uh, reach out and find the new volunteer leadership Mm -hmm. that we're going to have. In this day and time, People are so busy. You would think with all the labor-saving devices yeah, and everything, all these efficiency, all these efficiencies right? that we have, that we would have more time on yeah. our hands. But the fact of the matter is, uh, people are much more involved. Whether it's when you have kids that are of the age that they're in school and there's a lot of activities, and certainly, you know, people want you need to be involved with your families if. If there's one thing I did growing up or in my early married career, I, 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 my family sacrificed a lot yeah. of times. Yeah. My kids and my wife did yeah. because my job and things become more important. And it's, it's tough to balance that. It is. But we have to have those leaders. We have to have those good volunteer leaders that will stay involved. Yeah, I expect your family knew that where, you're, uh, where your first priority was ultimately, even though you were spread in many different yeah. directions. These days are spread more. Steve, I want to drill down a little bit on the sustainability piece because I know this is an issue of personal passion for you. You were raised on this farm. You and your brother uh, have been in a farming partnership. I know that your son is involved. Talk to us a little bit more about the value in the soil and and the art of passing it on better than it was yeah. passed for you. Well, you know, my family has been in Crosby County for a little over 100 years now. 
uh, not necessarily farming all the same ground and everything, but they've been there farming. And, and I've got to say that, you know, my son and I have these conversations all the time that when I look back on the way that I farmed when I first started farming and my, and my brother, Eddie was always seen as an innovator mm -hmm. and doing things differently and kind of not being on way out on the cutting edge, just doing, but, but just looking at things and doing things, trying to be more efficient. But a lot of the things we did were because we didn't know any better at the time. And, uh, we have different tools, but you know, the things that are going on now with my son and looking more at soil health, using cover crops, armoring the soil, yeah. uh, soil infiltration rates, yeah. because we know in our part of the world here, you know, we get enough rain in most years mm -hmm. to grow a crop, but it's, we don't get it all into the soil. It's right. the thing. And if we can capture more of the rainfall when it comes, and when we get those big, four and five inch rains at a time, I think ultimately will make a big difference. We're transitioning to dry land agriculture in our part of the world. We've benefited greatly for the last 50 years of having irrigated agriculture from the Ogallala Aquifer, but it's, 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 it's going down every year and we're transitioning to dry land agriculture. And so we have to get that system figured out. And I think through some of the things we're looking at, better infiltration rates using cover crops, no-till. Uh, I, I, I think it's the future. It, there's not a one-size-fits-all. Everybody's situation is a bit yeah. different, but I just, I challenge people to try to throw out the window this deal. Oh, that won't work here. Right. Uh, and rather say, oh, maybe that won't work here exactly like they're doing it. But is there a way we might can make it work yeah. here for yeah. us? Yeah. So uh, it is important, and and I'm very excited yeah. about a lot of it. I really am. I love it, and I appreciate that excitement. Knowing all regions of the country have their kind of unique resource concerns, certainly water, and uh, and the best use, the most efficient use of, of the rainfall we do receive in this area is is, is a big part of it. And, and uh, I just want to thank you for your leadership on that from the ground up, uh, in a different way. Back to kind of the DC scene. All right, we're we're theoretically going to get into a farm bill here in 2023 uh, again. Uh, these happen about every five years, uh, give or take, and sometimes there are delays or speed ups. Um, but just from your perspective, what what advice would you give to farm producers on how to get involved, how to share their views with Congress? Do they need to be intimidated? Do they need to reach out there? Is it always through organizations? Just talk a little bit about how best farmers can be involved. Well, uh, they shouldn't be afraid. Uh, you know, my advice is to work with the organizations that you have. Now that doesn't mean, you know, in this day and time, I remember when I first started farming, about the only way you found out about news and stuff was through organizations. Yeah. Yeah. Because we didn't have the internet, we right. didn't have cell phones, we didn't have all this. and so. You know, you had to rely on the people that yeah. were on the ground yeah. in D.C. or Austin yeah. or whatever to. Yeah, that Farm Bureau or National right. Cotton Council newsletter. That, that's yeah. right. And that doesn't lessen what they do. They still are very important because farmers can't individually do what they do on a day to day basis. Yeah. And that's why we need these organizations. 
but to work through the organizations, but then be an advocate yourself. And even in your own community, how many times have we uh, heard that, you know, old farmers, you know, they're just, uh, they're just going to the mailbox for their next check. Yeah. You know, you have to be an advocate even in your own community. And I would say as well to be sensitive in your own community about, about what you do and how you do things and, and being involved in your own community is a way to bring it down real to the folks that you you live and work with. And so uh, be involved with the organizations, the commodities that you're that you're a part of, the general farm organizations, but then as well, be as well read as you can and try to stay informed on, yeah. on the subjects as well and get to know yeah. your congressman. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's not hard to get to know these <coughs> congressmen so they know who you are. Yeah. There's a lot of opportunities when they come to the district, be at some of those town hall meetings and, yeah. and work directly with those folks. I love that. And and I, I maybe add or see what you think about this. I mean, there are people who who actually kind of like, they like reading the news, they like being aware, they like actually voicing certain things. There are others that would rather be kind of the mad scientists on their farm, digging in yeah. there all day yeah. long. And it's kind of like, that's great. We need all of you. Absolutely. But if you have particular talents, and if you if you can stomach what goes on in Washington, D.C., or that process, by all means, we need you to get involved uh, in that way. Yeah, absolutely. That's why I go back to the volunteer leaders. We need you. Uh, we struggle, you know, keeping that pipeline full yeah. of folks that will grow into these positions. You know, it's just like, you know, 24 years goes by in a pretty quick amount of time. And so, you know, here in the next four or five years, we're going to need a new group of people. You know, we've got good leadership involved in our organization, but they're not going to be there forever. Yeah. And so I just encourage you to find the time to, if it's something that interests you, like you said, I know there's some people that they're like, don't bother me with the facts. Just give me, you know, or uh, they just want to, they want to do their work yeah. and, wanna, and they're satisfied that yeah. somebody's going to be taken care of yeah. in that regard. Yeah. And that's fine. Yeah. Okay. So uh, two, two questions to finish one, what are you going to do in retirement? That's the easy one. And then, yeah. and then I'm coming back to this. What are some of uh, your, your fondest accomplishments yeah. and, and uh, things that, that you've been a part of through the years? Well, I'm, I'm working much more on the farm now and will as long as my body will hold up. I told somebody the other day that I actually got out the farm early the other morning because I knew there was a spot of weeds that needed to be hoed. And I really like hoeing, especially when it's kind of cool in the morning. And I got to thinking about comparing my 68-year-old person to the 14-year-old that used to hoe with my dad and brother, that my soul was much more tortured hoeing when I was 14, but my body wasn't nearly as tortured when I was 14. And it's just the opposite. Now it's so good for my soul, yeah. you know, to yeah. whack those weeds and work along. <laughs> but, but my body, you know, it's, when I get done, it's a little bit more taken back. So that's where I'm going to be, you know, uh, learning to run the, the spray rig and the cotton harvester. I'd like to do that a little bit. I'm going to be, still be involved. I'm going to stay on the Southwest Council exactly. board at least uh, for as long as Plains Cotton Growers wants me to serve in that regard. So I'm not walking away from policy uh, completely, but I'm just going to be much more involved on the farm and and uh, and helping my son and what I can. That's great. Hoeing smarter every day. All right. And and uh, and uh, some of your proudest accomplishments? Well, I guess one of the 
Well, when I came to Plains Cotton Growers, uh, you know, we're fortunate in the cotton industry. This is kind of a cotton inside deal that, you know, we have cotton gins as the first process of our product. It can't be sold or anything that yeah. goes to a cotton right. gin. And all of those cotton gins, 99% of them anyway, are farmer owned, either through the cooperative or the corporate structure. Right. And so that's how we collect the dues in the cotton industry is to go to the cotton gins and convince them of our worth. We don't have to go yeah. farmer by farmer. When I came to work, we had about 52 or 3% of the production on the high plains of Texas was paying dues in the plains mm -hmm. cotton. Mills. We're not a commodity. We're not a checkoff. We're not by law. Right. It's by contract. Yep. And every GM makes that decision every year. And I said to our, our, when I went around in my first few years of visiting with gym boards and everything, that I wanted them to understand that Plains Cotton Growers was not a charity. Mm -hmm. It's an investment. And if you don't feel like you're getting a return on this investment, then you shouldn't be paying the dues. Well, I hope that at least where we are today, where we're collecting on well over 90% of those bales today, awesome that that's an indication that they do believe that the investment is well worth it. Yeah. I do believe that. And that goes for the National Cotton Council as well in that regard. So that's that's the, the biggest one. Uh, and then from there was just other things, changing our board structure so every board member has a, every GN has a board member. And then finally, uh, finishing off with where Plains Cotton Growers has its own home. It owns its own facility yeah. and it's set for the future. And we'll have a home that will, a uh, building that will provide a home for it for well into the future and any a facility that we welcome other people to use. So those I would have to list as major accomplishments. Well, it's evident even in your list here is that, that uh, you steward the things that you're a part of in the same way that you steward your farm trying to pass it on better uh, than, than it was passed to you. And you've done a remarkable job with with Plains Cotton Growers, including setting up the new CEO, Cody Besson, who is is uh, is a, a great man in his own respect and, and is gonna fill your shoes nicely. And you know, any any good mark of a leader is someone who who can can set up the, their transition. You didn't even talk about all the accomplishments in DC, but yeah. let me just say one before you hit it off here. I mean, this is what I'd say. Steve, everyone who you've touched, who you've spoken to, all the many contacts and uh, and relationships you've built um, through the years in Washington D.C. have been have felt like they were going to be held to a higher standard, and they've they've held that higher standard toward one another. You've improved the field of play, the the ground that we cultivate in Washington D.C. on an ongoing basis. And uh, enough thanks couldn't, couldn't be said for the work that you've done there. There are specific accomplishments. We could spend minutes and minutes and hours talking about accomplishments for cotton alone. But the bigger voice of agriculture in Washington, D.C., and, and the relationships you've built that have, that have brought a chorus to that voice uh, uh, is what I would say is, is one of your great accomplishments in that field of play in Washington, D.C. But I, just the last thing I would say on that, that is, that was in a, uh, another part was knowing and trying to convey that we can't do it alone. Uh, I knew that yeah. Plains cotton growers couldn't do it alone, even though we're the biggest cotton growing area in the United States. Yeah. 
we had to build a bigger coalition and uh, we've done that and uh that i am very proud of that and and what we've helped form and helped put together uh folks working together and finding out that we have way more in common than we have in difference across commodities and across just a lot of different interests and so that's a great way to end steve thank you again for joining us today your your leadership has helped pave the way for so many cotton growers and texas farmers and farmers across this nation we're so appreciative of everything that you've done we're sure uh we, you, and that you'll continue to do that good work uh, in support of american agriculture so uh, thank you again that's going to do it for this episode of groundwork i'm tom sell <laughs>